So let us get into numbers. This week we're in chapter 9. Last week we saw the Levites were consecrated as living sacrifices within the people of God. Now, in chapter 9, we're on the cusp of the journey. The, the, the next phase in Israel's existence is about to begin. And in chapter 9 it says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the desert of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. What does that mean? The first month of the second year? That means they've been there for a year. This is the first month of the new year. So they came out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, and they've been camped in the desert of Mount Sinai, northwest Saudi Arabia, somewhere in that area, for a year. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people camped in the desert for a year. Just let that sink in sometime. You know, we've been in this study for, we did Leviticus for about a year, and Exodus before that. We're kind of on par with where they were. In other words, we're not really stretching it out. <laughs> we're, imagine, they, they have not had Ruth's Chris lunch for a year, clearly. <laughs> but they've had manna and quail and water from a miraculous rock. Uh, they've been fed by God himself, so I don't think it was too bad. But imagine that being in the desert for a year, camped around a mountain with your flocks and your herds and your families, you know, people dying, people being born, life going on. You were slaves in Egypt. Now you're in the desert, you're free, but you're still not in the promised land. That's the existence that numbers paints of Israel's uh, life at this point. They've been promised deliverance, and they achieved deliverance. They've been promised, or God achieved deliverance. They've been promised a plentiful land flowing with milk and honey. They haven't seen it yet. That's where we find ourselves today as believers in God's promises. And we're not waiting for the physical land of Israel with milk and honey. We're waiting for the new Jerusalem, the new creation. We're waiting for the, the promise that God made to his people where we don't deal with things like hunger. We don't deal with things like cancer. We don't deal with things like our bodies breaking down with age. We don't deal with those things. That's what we long for, but we don't see that. We look around and we see what? Hunger? Bodies breaking down with age? Cancer claiming more victims? We see these things. So that tells us that whatever we are, whatever we're experiencing right now, is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not the it's not what we have been called to. And the people of God, the people of Israel, have been called to the promised land. Now along the way, not all of them will make it. And that's where the, old, the Bible tells us that they look forward to a greater promise. Even though the promised land that they're going to go live in is the immediate fulfillment, even at this point in Israel's history, there's still a longing for a greater promise. Because death and disease and war and famine are still realities even once they get into the land. So we always want to remember that the Old Testament promises were promises that were given to Israel and they had concrete fulfillments, but those promises themselves were types and hints and shadows of the greater promise that God gave his people, the greater rest that he promised his people. That's what all of everything points towards. So when you're reading the Old Testament, always read it with an eye towards even in its fulfillment, it's pointing to greater things than what it delivers at this time. 
And that's the faith that we walk in today, just on the other side of the cross. So the Lord spoke to Moses in the desert of Mount Sinai in the first month of the second year after they came out of Egypt. He said, have the Israelites celebrate the Passover at the appointed time. Celebrate it at the appointed time at twilight on the 14th day of this month, so halfway through the month, in accordance with all its rules and regulations. So Moses told the Israelites to celebrate the Passover, and they did so in the desert of Sinai at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded. Now this is pretty significant. Why? Well, when's the last time Israel celebrated Passover? Where? In Egypt. On Passover. Like the actual Passover. This is commemorating. This is the second one they've ever celebrated. This is not just a normal holiday to Israel at this time. The last time they ate the Passover meal, they were huddled in their houses at night, waiting for the destroying angel to pass over their houses. And it was accompanied then, the next morning, actually that very night, what, did, what were they, what was told? Get up and go. Get out of here. Leave this land. So Passover for Israel, the first Passover, was their transition from slaves into freedom. It was what began their journey as a people of slavery to God's holy nation. Now this second Passover is equally going to be another time of rebirth. This is now they're being going to be told, you're not leaving Egypt, you're leaving the midpoint, you're leaving Sinai, you're leaving God's protective presence around this mountain. But you're not going to go alone. He's going to go with you. And so this Passover now has huge significance for them. Huge significance. Because they are reenacting their deliverance from Egypt and setting out to something new but equally scary in terms of what's known. What? A year? Yeah, one year. So they've been in there a year. Now they've had a year of boot camp at the foot of Mount Sinai. A year of learning the laws, the preparation, being told this is how you're going to be, this is what's going to happen, this is your destiny, where you're headed, this is where I'm going to bring you, this is going to be what's required of you if you want to get there. All of this stuff that we've been looking at for one, for us it's been about a year and a half, give or take, if you go all the way back to Exodus. But this is recapitulating those last chapters of Exodus, <clears throat> this section of Numbers. So again, they are preparing to Exodus Mount Sinai instead of Egypt, and to go into where God's called them. So he says, but, verse 8, excuse me, but verse 6, but some of them could not celebrate the Passover on that day because they were ceremonially unclean on account of a dead body. Somebody had died, and their family had done what families do when they die, which is they buried them. But as God has showed them throughout this year around Mount Sinai, death, leaves a symbolic and a spiritual residue when it comes to holiness that renders you unclean from being able to enter into the presence of God and being able to keep the sacrifices and the sacraments of God. So here's the dilemma. God, you told us to do this. And the first time he told them, there wasn't really any clean, unclean distinctions. It was in Egypt. They were all unclean. They were all in, in captivity in a Gentile land. But they all were able to keep the sacrifice. Now... God, you gave us these laws, but here's the problem. Some of us can't keep your law if we want to keep your law. That's the problem. 
we want to keep your law, but if we keep your law, we'll break your law. If we keep one law, we'll break the other law. It's a very Jewish concept of the rabbis and, and weighing out all of the commands in Torah is how do you do this? How do you navigate what happens when laws come into conflict? So this is a good problem that Moses is stumped by. So they came to Moses and Aaron that same day and said to Moses, we've become unclean because of a dead body, but why should we be kept from presenting the Lord's offering with the other Israelites at the appointed time? Moses said to them, wait until I find out what the Lord commands concerning you. Then the Lord said to Moses, so Moses didn't know. Moses had to take it to God and ask. So this is an interesting part. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, when any of you or your descendants are unclean because of a dead body or away on a journey, they may still celebrate the Lord's Passover. They're to celebrate it on the 14th day of the second month at twilight. They're to eat the lamb together with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They must not leave any until morning or break any of its bones. Those are just all the standard Passover regulations. When they celebrate the Passover, they must follow all the regulations. But if a man who is ceremonially clean and not on a journey fails to celebrate the Passover, that person must be cut off from his people because he did not present the Lord's offering at the appointed time. That man will bear the consequences of his sin. An alien living among you, and that word alien is, I mean, yeah, it's not like E.T. Um, it, the Hebrew word is ger. It's sojourner. It's one who, not, not a temporary worker, not one somebody who's visiting, but a ger, a, a sojourner, an alien, is someone who has immigrated into the society of Israel and is going to live under their stipulations. So this is someone brought into the covenant people, and that's what it's talking about. Um, what's that? Foreign, but there's the different word. There's difference. There's sojourners. There's typical foreigners, and then there's um, people who are just kind of passing through in Israel in, in ancient history. So this is the word that's used for a sojourner. Yeah, one who's making their living among them, living among them as part of their society. It's what Abraham was in the Promised Land. He was a sojourner among the Abimelech and those people. It's what Joseph was in Egypt. You know, it's, so it's, it's a, it's a long-term foreign resident. Uh, an alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must do so in accordance with its rules and regulations. You must have the same regulations for the alien and the native born. So God then gives this regulation on Passover. God's solution to the problem is, okay, if you're unclean, you can still celebrate Passover. Just wait till the next month, the next lunar phase, and you'll celebrate it on the next month. And you'll do it all the same. You'll, it'll, so there's two Passovers. There's one, and then there's a makeup. If you miss the one, you can take the makeup. But you can only miss the one for a legitimate reason. Not, oh, I just, it's not that important, so I'll just do it when, when the next one comes around. That's not a legitimate reason. Remember, Passover was the heart of who you were as a Jew. Passover was the, the Jewish Easter so to speak. It was, that was determining whether or not you are a member of the covenant people is your keeping of the Passover because the Passover was a reenactment of your origin and the very thing that gave birth to the people of Israel to begin with, out of Egypt. So God's saying it's important, it's crucial. If you don't do it, then that separates you from your people. You'll be cut off from your people. And we saw last year when we were going to Leviticus, that either means banishment 
Some say it means capital punishment. Some say it means that God will enact some sort of permanent punishment. Whatever the meaning is, the baseline was you are separated from the covenant people, either through death or through banishment or through supernatural intervention. So not keeping the Passover is throwing God's covenant back in his face. Keeping the Passover is identifying as the people of God and sharing covenant meal in his presence to celebrate your very identity, which is important for a nation that's been enslaved for 400 years. Everywhere around the world where there's long-term slavery, after people get their freedom, if they've been enslaved for a long time and their culture has been erased from them practically, there's always a struggle of identity. And there's a struggle of who am I? Where did I actually come from? And so people whose ancestors in this country were slaves frequently deal with things like, where did I come from? Who are my ancestors? Who are, and, and, and it's different than people whose ancestors were not enslaved, who came here voluntarily, don't always have that same empathy or the ability to understand that feeling. But for Israel, it's very important, just like it is today. So God is saying, your identity is rooted in me as your covenant Lord. And so everything you do is going to be rooted in who I am. So your whole identity as Israelites is the people God redeemed, the people God brought out of slavery. Because before that, it doesn't matter. What matters is God redeemed you. And through you, he's going to redeem the rest of the world. That's, that's the subtext of the people of Israel. That's their purpose and their goal. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. So before Israel ever knew God as creator, they knew him as redeemer. Remember, Israel didn't have Genesis. Israel wasn't sitting around reading Exodus, Genesis and Exodus, right? They lived it. They lived the Exodus. Then Moses compiled and eventually they wrote down and, and put together Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Numbers. So their first encounter with God was when this guy shows up from the desert and says, I'm Moses. And I'm going to lead you into freedom because our God, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me and said, let bring my people out of Egypt. So the first that they know of God is as their redeemer, as the one who fought the mightiest gods in all of the world, the gods of Egypt, and won without even lifting a finger. So this is why Passover is so important for them. This is why it's important that those who didn't celebrate it felt like we're being left out. How do we identify as God's people? How, we're second-class citizens just because we had to carry out our family duty and bury our father or our mother or our child or whoever. So God says, no, no. That would mean that death was at a higher standing than God if death could render you completely unable to celebrate the Passover. <clears throat> so what it says is, no, God makes a provision. And the law itself is seen as the law is to serve the people of God not vice versa. Jesus would deal with this a lot in his ministry. People would flip the law on its head and all of a sudden you ended up the Sabbath regulations became the thing that ruled over people to the point where it obscured the whole meaning and purpose of the Sabbath to begin with. And so Jesus has had to say, let's put things back in their right priority. And you see God doing that type of thing here. What's the priority? Everyone keeping this holiday so that the holiday was perfectly kept? Or everyone getting to identify as the people of God in the way God requires, even when they can't at that moment. God chose a second. So the demands of the law is still there, but there's a flexibility. 
there's a malleability. There's God is God, and he can say, yeah, this is how it should be. And in all other cases, it should be this way. But as with every law, there can be exceptions. There may be a legitimate exception. And so he gives an example of that. So it's a really interesting window into how God, remember, this is Mount Sinai. This is after the Ten Commandments. This is after the Torah, the, the covenant part that they all agreed to keep has been given. So this is on the fly. God is saying, here's what's happening. Yeah, I'm changing this to fit these circumstances. You brought these circumstances to me. It's not like they surprised God. God could have built this prohibition in from the beginning. He's God. He could have put that. In fact, some people say, well, why didn't he just say that to begin with? Well, don't know, but there's a value in your child bringing a problem to you. There's a value in a child coming to you and saying, I don't know how to do this. Help me. There's an interaction there that a parent has with an offspring. And God apparently wanted that to take place. And that's what we see here is this interaction. It bolsters not just Moses' authority in the eyes of the people, but it also bolsters the concept that they are to bring their problems that they can't solve to God at this little mini Mount Sinai thing called the tabernacle. And the high priest and Moses at this point, because Moses is still alive, but that God will respond. He will speak to them in a way that gives them what they need. But, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. There's, you see this concept here. God's making those exceptions. He's not putting law as this final, arbitrary, set in stone, unintended thing. He's saying the law is simply the embodiment of the relationship that I want to have with you. And so the relationship that I want to have with you is what takes priority if those two things ever come in conflict. But that doesn't mean you just jettison the law and say, oh, God just cares about relationship. No. You come, to the way, you come to God through the means that he's established, but knowing that those means are a means to an end. And the greater end is the relationship. So it's a balance you have to walk between legalism and libertine. You can't just throw out all the laws because God said some can be reinterpreted or done in a different way. But you also aren't slave to the letters of the law, especially when it conflicts with the greater importance of the law, which in this case is being the people of God, ceremonially, covenantally, in the concept of a meal sacrifice. So all of this is all bound up together, and it's a really, this is a chapter you skip over. I mean, this section you just skip over. Like, okay, regulations for Passover, and if you miss it, you can do this. But that's why we do this Bible study the way we do this Bible study. Slow down and say, what is the setting? What does this mean? What are the implications of this section? So then the last part of this chapter is going to do that chain linking thing we talked about. The chain link is when it's the, this passage is telling a story and it's about to get to the next part of the story. But at the very end, it kind of hooks back and interlocks with a little bit of what's coming ahead. And then later it'll move on. It's, it's an interlocking way that this chapters are set up. So, for instance, this next section of chapter nine is going to come after what will happen in chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 10, 1 through 10 are going to jump back to this point, but this part of chapter 9 is going to point ahead to the future and give a large-scale summary. Right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. That's a large-scale summary. Then chapter 1, verse 2, now the surface of the earth was da 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 They jump back to the surface. 
It'll tell seven day period. Then Genesis chapter two will jump back to what we would call day six and talk about the creation of Adam and Eve specifically and then move on. That's how so it's called recapitulation. It'll tell a big, big details and then it'll circle back to earlier things. We'll tell some more, and then we'll circle back, and then we'll keep going. So our narratives, we like to go, when you learn in a sentence diagram or a story diagram as a kid, you've got the beginning, you've got the rising action, you've got the climax, you have the resolution following action, or following action, and then you have the resolution at the end, or the ending. That's how our stories go in English. Hebrew stories recapitulate. They tell it, and then they retell it, and they tell it again, and they tell it again, and they wind, and they wind. It's just, it's just Eastern versus Western. Modern versus ancient. It's part of the differences that we have to look at. So here we are. We're getting a glimpse into the future. Because after Passover and celebrating Passover, in the Exodus came the moving out into freedom. Moving out of Egypt and going to freedom. So now, thematically, we've had the Passover again, the second Passover. And now it's going to once again move out into freedom. It's going to talk about the next phase of the journey. And in chapter 10, we'll jump back and give one last detail before they actually literally march so this says, verse 15, on the day the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, was set up, the cloud covered it. We saw those events, the end of Exodus, and then two weeks ago in Numbers. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That's how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. So, shade in the daytime, in the desert sun, heat, light, illumination at night. Wherever the cloud lifted, excuse me, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. And this is the refrain. This section is poetic. It's not in your Bibles. I guarantee all of your Bibles have this as a paragraph. But there are three refrains in it that are the same verse, just subtly different. So you look at a commentary and it'll talk this passage, this section is very poetic. And it's, it's poetic almost in the sense of some parallels of this time, some Ugaritic parallels. There's one called the Epic of Kira, or the Kirta Epic, and it's um, the Epic of Kirit, and it's a Ugaritic text that has this same structure and flow as this section of uh, numbers. So this is, this is a stylized kind of, that's, what you're, that's how you know you're not just reading straight narrative. This is giving you, this is almost like their camping hymn, their, their encampment hymn, their desert wandering hymn. It says, uh, Verse 18 is the refrain. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. We'll say that again two more times before the chapter. So then it goes on. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the, the cloud stayed only from evening till morning, and then it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. When it lifted, they would set out. The Lord's command they encamped, and the Lord's command they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. So they have not set out yet. Israelite, if we're, if we're in chronology and we're still sticking to the time frame, they haven't left Mount Sinai yet. They had the Passover. This then is going to paint the future of what it's going to be. They're going to set up. They're going to keep the Lord's commands. God is going to be their guide from where they are in Mount Sinai, the northwest Arabia desert, 
all the way up to the promised land, which is a pretty much a straight shot. I mean, they should literally just march kind of straight north until they enter the land. That's the plan. At most, it would be like a month journey, give or take. But God's still leading them. He still has desert time for them. The 40-year thing hasn't happened yet. That's not even on the radar. The plan is not to live in the desert for 40 years. The plan is to live in the desert as long enough for you to receive the covenant, celebrate the Passover, and then march towards the land of Canaan, defeating the enemies that God has put in the place there for you to drive out as his judgment on them so that you can settle into Canaan in fulfillment of the promise he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. That's the plan. They don't know anything about any 40-year period. And they won't for a few chapters. But this is giving us a little bit of foreshadowing. But it says whether it stayed for a day, a week, a year. Whoa, who said anything about living another year in the desert? It's foreshadowing. This is foreshadowing of what's going to happen. So even in their wandering, even in their disobedience, is what is letting us know is God will still be the one leading. They're having supernatural guidance. It's going to be important next week, because next week you'll see that they don't rely just on supernatural guidance, but God also provides them natural human guidance. And we'll talk about what that does in terms of obedience and relationship and everything. So next week is the departure, the actual departure. And they set out from Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, into the unknown. The difference is when they came to Mount Sinai, God was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire in front of them leading them to the mountain. He gets to the mountain. They camp around the mountain. He gives them the tabernacle. They build the tabernacle. He moves from the mountain to the tabernacle. Now when they set out, he's going to be right there with them. And the Levites, the ones carrying the stuff, will be the ones leading, and he'll be there with their presence. But then whenever they stop and set up, they'll camp around him. Mount Sinai is going with them in the imagery of the Bible. God is going with them. So, have a great week, and uh, we'll pick it up, Chapter 10, next week. Thanks.